When I got my own apartment, I made sure there was a fire escape so that I could get into drag, go down the fire escape, and go to work. Because if you were a homosexual, you could be thrown out of your apartment. You could be fired from your job. We've come a long way since being gay was illegal. And I had to keep everything undercover, um, which was not always that easy, but you you had to watch what you were doing, and you had to... I never spoke to people on the street. But there's still so much work to do until the world is a safe place for queer and trans folks. It really wasn't that long ago that people were criminalized at every turn for homosexuality. And today, people still face discrimination. It just became illegal to discriminate against gender identity or expression in Canada in 2017. It might seem to some like the struggle is over, but it is not. Homosexuality is still illegal in 70 countries. 70% of transgender youth have experienced sexual harassment. The rates of violence against trans women are unbelievably high. The average life expectancy of trans women of color is 31 years old. So, spaces where queer and trans identities are celebrated are so important. Drag is one of those spaces. You're listening to Taking Up Space on CFUV 101.9 FM, broadcasting from the Wissanich and Songhees territories of the Sinchothan and Lingwangan-speaking peoples, also known as Victoria. That voice you heard was David Hardwick, who's lived in Victoria for 30 years. My drag name, uh, my name is David Hardwick. I have been doing drag since 1958. And in 1958, I was known as Rita, and I sang live, and the audience extended my name because when I would do a certain song, they would holler one more time. So I became known as Rita One More Time. On part one of our two-part drag series, we're starting with where we came from. We look at the history of drag and of gay rights and how all the work done by mostly trans women of color led us to where we are today. The origins of drag begin in theater, where young boys were assigned women's roles during the Shakespearean era. No one questioned their sexuality or gender because the association between queerness and drag had not yet been established. But this period is where David says drag got its name. And that was from Shakespeare. Um, because when he'd write a script, in the border, he would write D-R-A-G, which is dressed resembling a girl. Skipping ahead a couple hundred years, anti-cross-dressing laws were spreading across the states starting in 1848, and it became more dangerous to wear clothing that did not represent your biological sex. But people kept doing it, and female impersonators, as they were called, were enjoyed as entertainment in the mainstream, but prosecuted if they ever dressed as women in their regular life. David says he has always considered his gender identity to be fluid. Well, you know, the funny thing is that because I grew up with a a mother and two sisters, and listening to her teaching them how to be a good wife I never really looked at myself as being a homosexual. I looked at myself being 
just another girl that's going to find someone to marry. And then as I got older and I went, ooh, wait a minute, I'm a guy looking for another <laughs> a guy to marry. This is what homosexuality is. But before that, basically, I was just another girl. So he says he never really had to come out. I never experienced it because I was always out. Over the next decades, drag was not yet a distinct community, and people who identified as drag performers, female impersonators, and as transgender flowed into each other. And I performed in a straight nightclub, not as a drag queen, as a female impersonator. Female impersonators is the term that predated drag queens, and it refers to male performers who dressed as women for theatrical purposes. In her book, How Sex Changed, A History of Transsexuality in the United States, Joanne Mayerowitz writes that in the 50s, performing as a female impersonator became a safe place for trans women to express their true selves. But it was Latinx and Black trans women who cultivated the culture that allowed drag to flourish. It was these women who built the scene that became a safe place for cis gay men to do drag. They developed ball culture and the art of voguing that eventually separated drag from other kinds of performance. Then we became drag queens instead of just female impersonators. Ball culture, if you're not familiar, dates back to the 1920s. Performers who represented different houses would walk down a runway to compete for prizes. It's what Paris is Burning is all about. And it's where a lot of the culture around drag was born. This distinction between drag and female impersonator is important because drag is more than a man dressing as a woman. In the words of RuPaul, I don't dress like a woman, I dress like a drag queen. In the early 60s, David was navigating his interest in doing drag and avoiding prosecution from the cops. As he said before, he would make sure to get an apartment with a fire escape so he could leave the house in drag without being noticed by the police. So they kept picking me up, taking me into the police station, making me sit. And usually about seven in the morning, say, okay, you can go. And I'd have to run like hell home, get out of drag, get dressed and go to work. Which basically means I hadn't had any sleep. So I'm at work, you know, dragging my butt, trying to get my day job done and get a few hours sleep before I had to go back to the bar to work. This was in Hamilton, Ontario, where David is from. During this time, it was dangerous not only to be gay, but to be a trans woman. Many drag performers were trans women, and the police would regularly harass gay and trans folks. As far as the police were concerned, I had to wear three pieces of male apparel. And being a theater geek and sneaky, I wore skaters' tights. And then I took a pair of men's socks and I put my heels on and drew around the sock. And then I cut the foot out of the tight and sewed the men's sock into it. You couldn't see it because it was inside the shoe, but I could take the shoe off and show him that I was wearing men's socks. And David told us about the ways that the community had to have all these systems in place just to go out dancing and avoid spending the night in jail. There was one dance bar in Toronto. It was called Letros. 
And they had built this window in the front of the building that stuck out, and there was a man in it all the time. And whenever the police come by, he had a switch. And if the lights in the on the dance floor flashed, you instantly turned and grabbed a female. So there might be two lesbian dancing here and you and your boyfriend dancing here. And the lights would flash and you would instantly switch. Well, it was so neat because... The police would come in and they'd walk through, making sure there were no two guys or two girls dancing together. Well, they might be there for two to three songs. So you would talk to the lesbians and you became friends and supportive of one another. We're coming dancing next week too. You guys coming? <laughs> okay, well, we'll meet up here. And if there's a a raid or the cops coming in. And they used to raid a lot of places. You never knew what the hell to expect. Wake me up Thought that it'd be over Dreams can't make me sober The last arrest for homosexuality in Canada was in 1965. It was Everett Clippert who was arrested for gross indecency in the Northwest Territories. His case led to reforms of the criminal code in 1969 and to what many still believe was the decriminalization of homosexuality in Canada. But that's not entirely true. Homosexuality was not explicitly illegal. The terms used in the criminal code were buggery and gross indecency. The government added an exception clause to the code in 1969 stating that people would not be prosecuted for acts committed between two consenting adults over the age of 21 in the privacy of their own home. But many gay people used their vehicles or other discrete areas to meet up, which meant gay sex in this context was still a criminal offense. Everett was not charged with having gay sex in a private space. It was deemed to be public space, as he often used his vehicle, so these reforms actually didn't benefit him at all. He wasn't released until 1971. This is a clip from Kevin Allen's documentary, Gross Indecency, The Everett Clippert Story. There was a trial, and he was convicted again and sent to jail. In that court case, there were two psychiatric assessments done of Everett, and they both said he was such a nice guy, so gentle. He Jail wasn't actually the right place for him, but the judge in that case convicted him. And then the Crown went a step further and decided to have him um, prosecuted as a dangerous sexual offender, likely to reoffend. And so the court psychiatrists agreed that he would, if he got out of jail, would likely have sex with men again. And so he was a menace to himself and a menace to Canadian society. And that's what was the pivotal difference in his court case that made its way all the way up to the Supreme Court. Tensions were high across North America, with the police doing constant raids and people being prosecuted all over for being gay. During the summer of 1969, David and his boyfriend, Richard, went to New York to visit a friend of David's who was a Broadway director. They were all planning to go out, but his friend went to them and said, Look, I can't take you out tonight. Um, I've got to be at the theater. I've got a new dancer coming in and I've got to make sure they're all ready. And I said, no problem. 
but I haven't seen Greenwich Village. Can you give me instructions on how to get there on the subway? So off Richard and I go. And when they left the subway station at Greenwich Village... There was this wave of people running down the street. And um, Richard actually said to the guy, what's going on? And the guy went, Mary, just get out of here. The cops are clubbing everybody. David and his boyfriend had stumbled into Stonewall, the iconic uprising that catalyzed the gay rights movement. Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, both trans women of color, threw the first bricks that started the riot after the police raided the Stonewall Inn. It was a demonstration against the ongoing police violence and discrimination. We ran around a couple of blocks and then hit the fire department and... um, I got hit with a fire hose and slammed up against a building. And he says he'll never forget what that felt like. Unbelievable power. It will take you right off your feet and slam you against a wall. Wow. It was like, we got to get the hell out of here. So they did. Richard grabbed me and scooped me up and we ran another couple of blocks. Eventually they got directions back to their hotel, but they still didn't know what they had just stumbled into. The next day when we got up, uh, we actually found out in the newspaper what it was all about and that there was going to be a big march the next day. And I looked at Richard and I said, we're going to be in that march. He had been to gay rights marches in Canada. Which could be dangerous. Uh, Often you got rocks or bottles or... Most times, rotten fruit and eggs and stuff thrown at you. But this one was unlike any of the ones he had been in. Oh, hundreds and hundreds of gay people coming together and marching um, to say, look, we've had enough. That event was the start of what would become the gay civil rights movement. It's amazing what we used to go through. But during the 60s and 70s, there was still huge resistance to LGBTQ rights across the world. And I I keep saying to, to young people, be careful. It can change back. Quebec was the first province to change their human rights code in 1977 making it illegal to discriminate against gays in housing, employment, and public service. But the rest of the provinces and territories didn't follow suit until much later. BC changed its code to outlaw discrimination of gay people in 1992. Alberta didn't make the change to the Human Rights Code until 2009, which was 12 years after the Government of Canada made federal legislation to prohibit discrimination based on sexual orientation. These changes were really not that long ago. The latest version of the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM-5, was the first to declassify transgender identity as an illness. It was released in 2013. The World Health Organization is only changing this classification this year, in 2019. It takes effect in 2022, meaning that, until then, people who are transgender are still understood as having a mental illness by the global body of world health. Until late 2017, trans people who were incarcerated had to go to a prison that reflected their anatomy, rather than their gender identity. 
But even with this change, trans folks are often put into segregation for their own safety. This is tape from a town hall meeting in Kingston, Ontario, in 2017, where a woman asks Prime Minister Justin Trudeau about the treatment of trans people in the prison system. Corrections Canada has, in the past, been doing what I consider torture of transgender inmates by placing, like, especially trans women, in a prison for men. Now, you would not, of course, consider the fact that a woman of any other uh, type would be uh, put in a men's prison, but trans women have been. Uh, I strongly suspect a lot of trans women are put into segregation, which is not much better than solitary confinement. So my question to you is, will you uh, do your best to ensure that trans women are put in prison uh, or prison more appropriate to their gender identity? The answer is yes. Um, I will ensure that. I mean, this is a great example of, of the... Uh, uh, the value of of having these community meetings like this in these town halls, because I'll admit, uh, I consider myself to be a fairly strong advocate for uh, for LGBTQ2 issues and and uh, fairly uh, aware of all the different pressures. And this wasn't one that I had ever thought of. So thank you uh, for bringing it forward, and I will make sure that we uh, we look at it and we address it. This is a reality for so many people because queer and trans folks are disproportionately represented in the prison system. Just to give you an idea of how disproportionately, the Canadian Observatory of Homelessness says 40% of youth in girls' prisons identify as queer or trans, but they make up less than 10% of the general population. The Data Analysis Project Intersectional Analysis says that lesbian and bisexual women are 8 to 10 times more likely to face incarceration than heterosexual people. And 85 to 90% of incarcerated queer youth are people of color. And the prime minister until recently hadn't considered this issue. This wasn't one that I had ever thought of. Since then, Corrections Service Canada has overhauled this policy and trans people can now be placed in a prison that matches their gender identity rather than their anatomy, but are still unsurprisingly mistreated in the prison system. And it's important to recognize that late as they are, these kinds of changes are the result of tireless efforts of LGBTQ activists and largely people of color who have been fighting for their rights for decades. One of the most important events in Canadian history for gay rights happened in 1981. The Toronto bathhouse raids, often referred to as Canada's Stonewall. Police with crowbars and sledgehammers raided four bathhouses and arrested almost 300 men, which was the largest mass arrest since the October crisis. Charges were laid and many people were outed. People lost their jobs, homes and relationships. Here's Clayton Ruby, a lawyer and activist who worked on the case, talking about how the police handled the arrests in 1981. If you've got businesses that have been carrying on exactly the same way for 20 years, and there's a lot of them in the city, not just the four rated, but dozens more, and you think what they're doing is wrong, the polite thing is to send around an officer saying, we think what you're doing is wrong and you've got to stop. Would you please consult a lawyer and consider that matter? Um, you don't just walk in the middle of the night with these search warrants rounding up people. You give ordinary people who are ordinarily law-abiding a chance to conform to law before you treat them like the lowest form of life. And the next day, more than 3,000 people protested police actions, 
marching to the Toronto Police's 52nd Division to demonstrate against police violence and discrimination. For the time, it was a huge show of support for gay rights in Canada. And David is no exception to being one of those activists. He had stopped doing drag because of his boyfriend. When they first met... I got to realize he was a closeted Catholic boy that let religion rule his life. And I thought, oh, poor bugger, I'll pull him out of this. <laughs> so I, um, we started to go together. But Richard was afraid that one of his family members would see one of David's drag shows and find out they were gay. So he asked me not to do it. And because I was in love, I said, okay. And um, I didn't do it. Until the early 80s, when AIDS hit. And I went to him and I said, I'm going back doing drag. And all the money I raise is going to AIDS research. Richard agreed. I had already lost 16 friends. And... Nobody knew what the hell it was. But I had one friend in particular. um, He was a goofy kid, you know, lots of fun. And he came home and got taken into the hospital. And so I went to see him. And we had to be gowned and gloved and masked and everything. He had five highly contagious diseases all at the same time. And when other friends started to die, I said, I got to do something. So he did. He went on a drag tour with Richard. I went back and he was my manager. He booked all the major cities in Canada, most major American cities, and even hit Mexico and South America. And all the money that I got paid, I got paid in checks that were made out to AIDS research. When he got back from the tour, he became an AIDS buddy, which is a volunteer emotional support person for people living with HIV. Of course, many of the people he was supporting wouldn't make it. And one of my jobs was to go into their home and clear out all of their medication and then dispose of it properly, which I became a drug smuggler. David would take unused AIDS medication that he was supposed to be disposing of and... I would say, yes, I'll dispose of it properly. And cross the nearest American border and take them to the AIDS Foundation. (laughs) That was my properly. (laughs) He wanted to help people who didn't have health care in the States. And I said, look, I know you have people that can't afford their medication. So this is all free. So David would gather up ATZ and other drugs, hide them in his car, and take them over the border. Naturally, you're looking at an older man crossing the border who thinks they're smuggling drugs. But miraculously, the border guards never suspected that David was a heroic drug-smuggling drag queen. And the surprising part, what a lot of people don't realize, in the beginning, there were AIDS walks and all these AIDS benefits. And it was the lesbian community that really backed us drag queens up. We got the recognition. David told us about a time when the support from the lesbian community really stood out to him. He was performing in an AIDS benefit drag show in Victoria. And... 
I arrive at the park, and there's this beautiful big stage that's about that far off the ground. He's hovering his hand about four feet off the ground. And there's no stairs to get up onto it. This lesbian said, what do you need? I said, I need a set of stairs to get up there. Or a ladder or something. Ah, no problem. She goes to her truck. She goes out. She's got a skill saw. She got 20 minutes. I had a flight of stairs going up onto the stage. I was like, hell. The 90s saw some major changes and some landmark court cases. In 91, BC changed the Human Rights Code to prohibit discrimination against gay people. And in 92, the government lifted the ban on homosexuals in the military. In 94, legislation that would allow same-sex couples to get spousal benefits was struck down. And in that same year, Delwyn Friend was fired from his job at King's University in Alberta because he was gay. Alberta still hadn't changed their human rights code. So Wren sued the government of Alberta, and the court ruled that sexual orientation must be added to the code to prevent cases like his from happening again. Then, in 96, the government of Alberta won on appeal, and the decision to change the human rights code was overturned, which is how Alberta got away with not making the change until 2009. And given this climate, it's not surprising that prior to 1994, Victoria didn't have a pride parade. There was a picnic in Beacon Hill Park. In an article in the Times Colonist from 2017, the picnic was described as a subdued affair, with a couple of balloons, some hot dogs, and that orange drink that McDonald's would give out to community groups. When I heard about the picnic, I thought, oh, this is great. And then... I was talking to someone and they said, oh yeah, it's very family-oriented. People were terrified of homophobia and violence. And in that same article, one of the people who went to the picnic said a lot of people didn't want to come because they thought there'd be snipers in the trees. Leathermen are not allowed. Drag queens are not allowed. (laughs) I'm going, it's a gay picnic and drag queens aren't allowed. And I arrived in full rainbow drag, carrying a huge pole with a pride flag on it, right into the middle of their picnic. David felt it was important to be visible. <laughs> I could see the some of the people going, oh my God, everybody's going to know this is a gay function. Well, it is, so what the hell? <laughs> In the summer of 1994, Victoria had its first Pride Parade. It was about 200 people, and they marched on the sidewalk because they couldn't afford a city permit to march in the street. It went off without a hitch, except for some snide remarks made by people who were playing croquet on the Empress lawn. But the next year, the parade caused more of a stir. A biker group called the Lesbian Avengers rode in the parade topless. The people of Victoria were scandalized. They made complaints to the newspapers, presentations at City Hall, and the police threatened to charge them. This kind of boldness is something that David is no stranger to. (laughs) I was a leader. (laughs) I basically, I was the catalyst that pulled a lot of drag people out. He didn't have any mentors when he started drag. (laughs) In 58, nobody admitted that they were a female impersonator. Without anyone to ask, David turned to books. Books. Basically books. Um, When I first did drag at 19, 
as you notice, there's no contouring and there's no all of that stuff. Um, but there are lots of books on uh, makeup. So he mentored other people. Yeah, it was. And then naturally, I people gravitated to me and I would go, you'd be beautiful as a girl. Okay, we're going to get this going. But as David will tell you, drag is a lot more than putting on the makeup and an outfit. Doing drag is a celebration of queer identities, and it's a space where people can feel safe to express themselves in a world that is constantly telling them their identity is wrong. It's not just about all pretty or all funny or all, you have to have the whole package. You don't become a movie star because you dance well. You have to be able to act, you have to be able to do different things. And the people that succeed are the ones that do it all. And so I recommend to to drag people that are getting into drag is to diversify and become more than just what the person is looking at at this moment. Drag for David is about owning who you are and being yourself. I think if I was talking to a brand new performer um, I'd have to say, stop worrying about whether they like you. The audience has come to the bar to have a good time. They haven't come here to crucify you. Relax, go out there, have fun. They'll, if you have fun, they'll have fun. So, you know, just stop worrying it and... To help you out, just before you step out, glance through the curtains and see who in that audience is paying your rent. Because that's the only person you need to worry about. And if you're paying your own rent, to hell with them. (laughs) They can just relax and and be themselves and do what they want to do. And if they're meant to do it, that first performance can turn the key and you're off. The act of doing drag is, in itself, political. Being seen and being celebrated while doing something inherently queer is an act of resistance to the heteronormative world. It's a radical act to celebrate marginalized identities but some identities are more marginalized than others. So any celebration of queerness needs to account for the intersectionality of people's identities. Clashes are still happening around the world, despite what seems to be a growing acceptance of LGBTQ people. And it can be extremely dangerous for people whose queer and racialized identities intersect, especially when cops get involved. Which is why, in 2016, Black Lives Matter stopped the Toronto Pride Parade. Their sit-in caused some uproar. Black Lives Matters stalled Sunday's Pride Parade, making demands, including the removal of police floats from future events. Well, today they reiterated those demands and called out some prominent people in the city. 
Right now, the options are open. Right now, we are putting everything on the table. Right now, the sky's the limit. Yeah. And we want Pride Toronto and the mainstream LGBT community to know that we see through the anti-black racism. Understand that the demands that we're asking for, what we're asking for, is coming from a lived experience as well as hearing the needs of our community. In a CBC News story from 2016, Alexandra Williams was asked if she felt that Black Lives Matter had taken away space from other marginalized groups who were being celebrated at Pride. We're not taking any space away from any folks. When we talk about homophobia, when we talk about transphobia, we go through that too as Black people. This is our space the same way. They are in our spaces. We are doing this together. It should be a cohesive unit of how we actually fight against oppression. It should not be one against the other. Anti-blackness and homophobia things that need to be addressed and they can be addressed at the same time in the same spaces. It does not need to be one or the other. It could be two at the same time. And in 2018, Shades of Colour, a queer trans POC group, stopped the Edmonton Pride Parade with a list of demands that they wanted signed before the parade could continue. They wanted to ban police and military from marching in the Pride Parade and all future parades, and they wanted the Pride Society to do more to include people of colour and provide more funding to POC groups. This year, in 2019, after further negotiations with Shades of Colour, the Pride Society cancelled the Pride Festival in Edmonton. When activists from Shades of Colour attempted to meet with organizers from the Pride Society, they were locked out of the meeting room and eventually the Pride Society called the cops on them. Organizers from Pride said that it was the current social and political climate that was behind the cancellation, and that they wouldn't be able to host a successful event given the pressures imposed on them by groups like Shades of Colour. The theme of this year's Pride Festival in Edmonton was going to be Stonewall. The Pride celebrations that happen now across the country take place in June or early July because they are commemorative of the Stonewall Uprising, and as David saw firsthand, The cops are clubbing everybody. It was a demonstration against the constant police violence against LGBTQ people. It sent the message that people had had enough of being prosecuted for who they were. Now, with cases like the murder of Eric Garner, Philando Castile, and Sandra Bland, police violence against racialized people is under scrutiny. So those who exist at the intersection of racialization and queerness are particularly vulnerable to police violence and other forms of violence. This is why groups like Black Lives Matter and Shades of Colour want cops out of pride, because it was those cops that upheld the social order that criminalized LGBTQ people, and it is those cops that are upholding the institutionalized racism that leads to the murder of people of colour. It has always been people of colour who have been on the front lines of resistance, and who have been the backbone of the drag community. And this is why, as we enter into the new era of changing policy and more rights for queer and trans folks, we have to remember the roots of that struggle, who was doing most of the work pushing for change, and that people are still fighting for their right to exist. Understanding what drag is about means understanding the struggle, both in a historical context and in a contemporary context. Even here in Victoria, the validity of certain identities is still being contested. After the break, we find out why. If you enjoyed this episode, you might like Full Circle's episode about historical and contemporary experiences of Blackness in Victoria, called Experiences of Blackness, Past, Present, and Future. I showed up at 6 p.m. 
tape recorder in tow, not knowing really what to expect. And what I found was very interesting. Our producer Sarah went to the anti-Soji 123 presentation and counter-protest at the Oak Bay Rec Center to record what happened. So the first thing you need to know is what Soji is. For short, Soji, or Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity. Started in 2016, around that time, and Soji 123 has been creating a little bit of a stir in BC. It's quite we're quite progressive on this side of the world, but still there was some backlash from religious organizations. So the story behind this night that I'm about to tell is to do with a speaker who is called Jen Smith. Jen Smith is the leader of the anti-Soji movement. He self-identifies as a transgender man, but says he is against transgender ideology. He was on a tour of Vancouver Island doing a talk titled The Erosion of Freedom, how transgender politics in school and society is undermining our freedom and harming women and children. Jen uses he-him pronouns, but Sarah wasn't sure when she recorded this, so you'll hear Sarah refer to Jen using they-them pronouns. This speaker was coming to Victoria to Windsor Pavilion in Oak Bay to give a speech on why they thought that Soji was harmful. So... I I had learned about it from Facebook events that were some there were some counter protests going on. I wasn't really interested in going to the speech, but maybe the protests that were going on around it, people who didn't want this speech to happen. The Oak Bay Police released a statement on April 30th um, saying this. The District of Oak Bay has received a significant number of communications from citizens regarding an event booking for a discussion on transgender politics to be held at one of our district's facilities. While the district is fully aware that this discussion may be controversial, the district has no legal bias to deny the permit as doing so would infringe on freedom of expression. Importantly, about approving the permit for the booking. The district is not engaging in nor condoning any position on the subject matter. The intention behind SOGI123 is to provide youth with resources and information to normalize and validate their experience and to address bullying and violence that many queer or questioning youth experience. The protesters were concerned that Jen was promoting hate speech by trying to shut down this initiative. Despite the outcry, the talk was going ahead for May 2nd. So basically what they were saying was that their hands were tied, uh, free speech. There's a, by Windsor Pavilion, there's a, a huge grassy field and it's sunny and you're by Oak Bay. And then there's a building right in the middle of two fields. So around the sides, I could see people starting to congregate. And this was the peace picnic that was organized by Ryan Painter. And it was the event that I had found on Facebook. So you get there and the vibe is really friendly. It's, you know, a big group of people, people with their babies and golden retrievers and everyone's waving um, the transgender flag and the LGBT flag. Um, Just a lot of happiness you could sense in the audience, which is what I had expected. They said that it was going to be peaceful. They said they just wanted to show up and show their support for Soji 123. And that's what I found. So there was a lot of speeches going on. So proud that so many of us are here creating space for these conversations to happen. 
So thank you. Let me give you some of those re reasons. One, I'm one of only five out gay members of parliament. Being proud of who you are and for not giving in to hate and fear and division that does not serve our community. And finally, um, to all of our lovely folks here, if your parents don't support you, then I'm your mom now. <laughs> I stand. You know, um, a lot of people who wanted to get up and talk about how they wished that when they were in school that this language was going to be taught, especially because SOGI 133 is aimed at diminishing bullying that arises out of ignorance in regards to people who are transgender and, and um, who um, are a part of the LGBT community. So people gave their speeches, especially one in particular. There was this 11-year-old girl. Um, her name was Bryn, I believe. And she got up um, in front of this big group of people. And, and I can't forget it. What she said was, I believe that for if somebody is a gender or s that they were born with, but they don't feel like if and they tell their pa parents that I don't feel this way, I feel different. And to be told, no, you have to be who you were born, born what you were born. Well, that just sucks. <laughs> everyone was laughing and clapping and it was really funny how honestly I would not be doing that at 11 so it was incredible and I talked to her mom afterwards you know to get permission for taping her and she said that she had just decided on the whim hey I'm gonna go up in front of this giant group of people and speak my truth from where everyone was gathered on the grass at the peace picnic Sarah could see a balcony one story up which was connected to the meeting room where Jen's speech was supposed to take place. I had saw people going up the stairs, but um, because I hadn't originally planned on actually going to the speech, um, uh, I didn't go up there at first. So when I noticed that there was something happening, I, I climbed the stairs, I went into the building, and um, they, they had said that the fire capacity, there was too many people in the room. So they were denying entrance to the people in the room. And I didn't want to get into any arguments. I'm five foot three. I'm not going to um, argue with anyone on that. So I was kind of standing back, but I noticed that it was getting quite aggressive. The the energy in, in the room where the speech was happening was very different to what was happening downstairs. So Sarah waited amongst the crowd of people trying to get into the room. And then it got pretty aggressive. People were starting to push and shove and, and get angry. If you get arrested, be the first to launch the human rights complaint. You'll do real well in court. Hate speech is illegal in Canada. The person you're speaking should be the person detained. Um, and so someone, and I'm not sure who. What's going on out there? The protesters just been arrested. Pulled the fire alarm. Now this big blaring alarm was just sounding off and I got freaked out because I was thinking if this is an actual fire, this is not how I'm going to die. <laughs> so I made my way down the stairs, went outside, you know, it was just around people. Um, but then 
um, something happened. Someone screamed out from the balcony saying, you know, the cops are starting to push people and, you know, we're going to need to form a human chain if anything happens. And I was like, well, I need to get my ass up there. (laughs) There's a story here. Sarah waited a few more minutes and tried to get in the room again. It looked like enough people had cleared out because of the fire alarm. I made my way into the room. And this is where things changed. The room was packed. The fire alarm was still ringing. People were, you know, shaking bells. There was just, you could just feel a lot of animosity in the room, which is, for me, at least unusual for for Victoria. I've witnessed that before, but you would never expect it in Oak Bay, of all places. Um, So, you know, I was standing in the corner of the room, and then Jen Smith started to speak. You might not be able to hear Jen's voice here. It's completely drowned out by the fire alarm, yelling, and noisemakers. This was around two hours after the speech was supposed to happen. So it's been a while. People are angry. It's hot. Um, They step up to the podium, Jen Smith, and they try to speak. They try to start their presentation. And this is kind of where all hell broke loose. The protesters were screaming, Soji saves lives, Soji saves lives. The people who had come to see Jen Smith, they were also quite angry. And maybe that's because they expected to come to a speech and, um, and, and hear like a lecture. And it wasn't happening because of all the interruptions. But then a gentleman next to me got up, started screaming at the top of his lungs. Jesus saves lives. Jesus saves lives. Then this older man, you could say he's like 70, so like where does he get the energy? <laughs> Stands up with his wife, approaches this young lady who I, I can just tell that she's uh, um, a protester, and just starts like yelling at her. And she's in tears, she's crying. And then I notice this woman come and, you know, place her hands on his shoulders and get him to sit back down. And I later learned that that there were some cops there in plain clothes, so I'm not surprised at that if that woman was a cop, um, just under disguise, because they didn't want to spook anybody. Um, this happens quite a bit. Like, Jen Smith tries to get up there. She has a PowerPoint presentation with Jazz Jennings and a bunch of other, you know, Caitlyn Jenner. And, um, and people interrupt again and again and again. There's this older woman who's sitting very close to where Jen Smith is. She stands up. She starts, you know, yelling that Soji saves lives and that this would have saved my friend's life. And 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 she was speaking out um, that how positive it is. But she was quite loud. And then she goes and approaches Jen Smith. And then one of these men at the front comes up and gets in her face and she leaves. Now, I later learned that these were the soldiers of Odin and Jen Smith had hired them to sort of act as pseudo-cops. And the soldiers of Odin are a far-right anti-immigrant group that originated in Finland. They are widely believed to be white supremacist neo-Nazis and violently racist, but they deny all these claims on their public Facebook page. And these were the people who Jen Smith brought to maintain order at this presentation. 
So when Sarah saw one of the soldiers of Odin step in between Jen Smith and the protester... I found it quite surprising considering that there were a lot of Oak Bay cops in the room, that it was this person who was coming and standing up in between them. It was That was very weird for me. So then this kind of happens again. There's some people who stand up. There's some outbursts. After like five or six times of, of them being interrupted, Jen Smith, the Oak Bay police come. The Oak Bay police department are actually closing the event down. And they shut it down. Protesters were yelling that they would leave when Jen leaves, as Jen tried to wrap up his speech. People were pushing and cheering and screaming, but Sarah stuck around. I wanted to get some first-hand accounts of what was happening, especially because the police were coming up to people and sort of putting their hands on their shoulders and talking to them as if they were best friends. So I was like, what's going on? So kind of fly on the wall. I approach um, two, two men. And I asked them, you know, what sort of resolution did they meet with these cops? So they introduced themselves. So my name is Matthew Monchak. My name is Sam Bertacargi. So I asked Sam because he was the one who um, the cop had actually come and like placed his hand on. You know, did you reach any sort of resolution? Um, what was that all about? And things, um, being he had said that there was reasons. real no resolution. Um, and what had happened was... I saw a cop physically assault someone, uh, put the, push them out on the balcony, and I interceded, at which point the cop flashed his gun at me, at which point one of my social workers interceded, and then it was just a whole f- show. And the cop was... the I, I felt physically threatened and actually physically pushed because the cop did push me. Uh, This was after he showed the gun to me and he was about to reach for the gun, at which point Jonathan, my social worker, jumps in. So had it not been for him, the gun would have been out. And it was all... And I interceded because he pushed another person out the window and slammed shut the balcony. So sorry. And it all happened in a blur. And I think that, like, the thing that stands out to me, right, is, of course, this Jen Smith person is coming, talking about this, but the crowd that it brings, right? And she used the Sons of Odin, which are well-known, a white supremacist, neo-Nazi group, to guard her and intimidate other people in the group and trying to, you know, quell it and trying to act like, I guess, pseudo-cops in this case. And I I think that just kind of shows uh, the type of people that are on her side, quote unquote, that would come to an event like this. And it's just, is really disappointing to witness. But I'm so happy all these people came out to counter it. And the voices of us definitely outweighed the voices of them. You know, you could see at this stage in the night, people were really, you could see it in their eyes, they were in a really intense state. They were hyper vigilant, they were on edge. Um, clearly, the happenings of the day really put them in a not great place and and i think it's interesting to note that um when that girl was being yelled at by that older man there was someone who came in a safety vest and stood next to her and i guess because people felt unsafe with the police presence in the room um the protest had said that there were multiple people there in safety vests and if you feel unsafe if you feel like someone is threatening your physical safety um you get them to come stand next to you and that's exactly what happened someone in a safety vest came stood like a log right next to this girl and then this older man backed off 
And then Sarah talked with someone who actually came to see Jen Smith speak. Her name was Mary. She had said, you know, something about wanting to hear a speaker. My expectation was to come and hear a speaker. And from even before he even began, there was verbal drowning out. And it's like there was an agenda from people that were going to not allow him to speak. And that's exactly what happened. And that's how I feel. I thought it was disgusting behavior. Um, and how the protesters were really um, disrespectful and aggressive. And then I asked her about Soji 123. And she said, I think Soji 123, I, I know what it is. I've read a lot about it. I've read a lot. And I think that all children need to be protected including normal children, including, you know, the whole spectrum. They all need to be protected. But Soji is a resource. I know, I understand what it is. It's not, it's not a class that they take. They can get resources. But to give a positive suggestion that kids can choose what gender they are today and tomorrow they can be a different gender or next week they can be a different gender or they could be a dog, or they could be whatever. To me, it's disgusting. It's so silly. I mean, where is the reason? And that really got me. You know, it's, it's weird to hear it on the news, but seeing somebody looking into somebody's eyes, she was staring me down. <laughs> and somebody saying that, you know, that we should be worrying about the normal kids, it's... It's heartbreaking because the, the reason that Soji was introduced into schools was because of the statistics of how much violence occurs against people in the LGBT community. It's so anyway, clearly had an opinion, um, which is her right. Um, but I got out there as fast as I could. <laughs> At that point, I was like, it is my time to go. So I went downstairs and I was lucky enough to run into Rose Henry. Um, she is a well-known person in the community, um, a very nice woman. And she gave me an interview and she, she gave me some information that I didn't actually know, but I was glad to know that at the very start of the speech, I guess around 6, 6.45 is when it was supposed to happen. There was a group of us women who went to the front first and we sang our songs and we showed the wall of resistance and um, one of the uh, organizers or, or park warden or whatever he is said that they called the police and that they um, threatened to arrest us women if we didn't take a seat. But we had already planned another action along the way. And so we're like, okay, so we all came off at the same time. And we heard that, you know, that they were calling the police on us while we were at the front and they sang songs. Um, they sang indigenous songs um, as kind of like a peaceful protest, saying, "We, you know, we don't want this here. This is um, this is fear mongering. This is hate mongering." Um, and I was really glad to speak to her because she's someone who I think has been in it for a while for everybody, not just LGBT rights, but indigenous rights. You know, women's rights. There's room in this world for this type of hate crime or, or judgment or anything, you know, that we're all in this together, you know, that what that person was promoting was pure hate. And so it's like, you know, we've had enough. Right? And so we voiced our opinions and 
we won. How has the resistance and all this history led the drag community in Victoria to where they are now? And how is the drag community building safer spaces for queer folks? On the next episode, we find out. I'm giving it my own, but I'm not the one you take home. I keep dancing on my own. This episode of Taking Up Space was produced by Sarah Sulman with help from Arissa Apentaku, Katie Sage, and myself, Coco Nielsen. Our executive producer is Mary Decker. Thank you to David Hardwick for coming in and sharing his story, and to everyone who we spoke with at the anti-Soji event and protest. This episode would not be possible without the generous support of the Community Radio Fund of Canada. If you liked this episode, don't miss part two next week and subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, give me your ear. Let's, uh, let's pull back the curtain for a minute and check out behind the scenes of CFPB's podcasts. Hi, my name is Yukari Peerless, and it's been a pleasure helping out with the production of the CFUB podcast. I love podcasts, and I listen to a lot of podcasts, and so it was uh, such a fun experience for me to help out making our own podcasts and stories for CFUB. The interesting thing, the most interesting episode for me was the episode about the Chinatown, because I because I go there all the time and I know the people there, but I don't really know exactly how it started. As a person of color, it was really interesting to learn how those people came to Victoria and hear their story from uh, Charlene Thornton Jones. She's a great friend of mine. Also, uh, John Adams, uh, everybody knows him. He is a great historian of Victoria. And yeah, it was such an honor for me to talk to those people and they hear their stories. Um, yeah, it was a really interesting um, experience. And I hope you enjoyed these episodes and hope you tune in next year as well. Maybe you can come and help us make podcasts as well. Happy listening. Cool.